back to the Mask You Get a Q podcast. My name is Brandon Hall. I'm pleased to be joined today by Christina Ishmael. Christina is an educator um, in the Office of EdTech at the Department of Education in Washington, D.C. Christina, welcome aboard. Thanks so much. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, so, um, so you're going to be speaking at the MassQ Spring Conference, so we'll give folks a little preview of that. Uh, but I want to get into your background a little bit here. You've got, like, the coolest background. You've gone from, like, all over the country, uh, Nebraska, Washington State, um, and now Washington, D.C. Uh, tell yep. us a little bit about your journey. You started off in, yeah. in Omaha. Yeah, I actually like to go back even a little bit further than that. So I uh, grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, went to Arizona State. Um, My first degree is in business and mass communications and then relocated to Omaha, Nebraska um, after I graduated. Um, And it it honestly, I I usually share this pretty transparently, openly around mental health because I think we're trying to reduce the stigma around this. But um, my journey into education started with a massive panic attack. Um, I had gone to school for business and mass communications, thought I really wanted to go into marketing and kind of that field. Uh, I went in for one of my first interviews and came out and was like, oh, no, oh, no, no, <laughs> yeah. this is not for me. Yeah, yeah. And my body was was like visceral reaction and telling me um, this is not what I was supposed to do. And so I had always considered education uh, a pathway for me. And I was like, OK, I OK, I'm listening. I'm listening, universe. And so then I ended up going to a child development center and worked as a preschool teacher while I went to a post-baccalaureate program and uh, pursued early childhood education and elementary education, and then kind of kept going as we often do in education. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was then in uh, the public school system in Omaha. I taught kindergarten. Um, I was a second grade dual language Spanish teacher. So I taught all second grade content in Spanish wow. uh, for a year, which was a really long year because I was, I mean, that's challenging. Um, so then you think about the impact that it has actually on, on our emerging bilingual learners as well. Uh, and then went back into a regular second grade classroom and then uh, was an EL teacher, English learner and teacher kindergarten through sixth grade at another school district before I went on to be the state ed tech director for the state of Nebraska. So representing all 245 public schools, um, 310,000 students across the state and um, had a really cool job. I mean, it was a brand new position. So half of it was internal and making sure that ed tech and all things digital learning were represented across all of our policies, you know, working with our folks in the title program to make sure that uh, we were incorporating ed tech and they knew about ways that we could fund ed tech uh, within schools. And then the other half was providing professional learning across the entire state. And that was not only for you know, leaders and, and educators, but even down to the classroom level where I would have a friend who would call me up from one of the local school districts and they're like, okay, we're, we're going to put iPads in the kindergartners' hands and we've got 30 kindergartners. Can you come help? And I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'd get to go do really cool things like that. And then um, I had an amazing opportunity back in 2016 to serve as a fellow in this office, the Office of Ed Tech here at the department. And I moved out here to Washington, D.C. back then, um, worked on a project supporting states and schools as they moved away from traditional instructional materials like textbooks to the use of open educational resources. Those are that are freely available um, that you can revise and remix them, knowing that teachers need these, that I use these in my own classroom. Um, and then I continued that work after I left the administration over at a, a nonprofit here in D.C. called New America, 
on their teaching, learning, and tech team, and knew that I wanted to get back into government at some point, but wasn't exactly sure. And then come the 2020 election, I was asked if I wanted to be a part of the um, Biden-Harris transition team as part of the education agency's review. And so I had the chance to do that. Wow. I got that fever again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, okay, okay, I need to get back to like this mission-driven um, work. And, mm-hmm. and fortunately, I was able to come back into the administration and step back in here in October 2021 and have been leading the office ever since. That's incredible. So, so you went from yeah. you went directly from teaching right into government. I did. I did. No, I was never at the district level, which is a very like it's kind of a weird jump, honestly, um, because you you miss some of the things that happen that you later learn. And I certainly learned it whenever I was at the state <laughs> um, and being able to support district administrators as they're making some really tough decisions, mm-hmm. whether it was around funding or what kind of technology to bring in or talking about, you know, the procurement process for selecting apps in right, a, in a right, school district because right. everyone does it differently. Yeah, right, right. Um, and knowing that everyone has their community to to listen to and, and be a part of that process. Yeah, I, I just it's amazing to me to think that that someone would jump from like from the classroom right into the government side of it. I love it. I think it's awesome. <laughs> uh, but but you, you have to like I'm sure you surrounded yourself with some really good people. Um, yeah. And, and there's I'm sure there's a lot of learn on the fly stuff. Um, oh yeah, I, yeah. So on the and at the, on the same thing that the transition team, uh, yeah. I'm sure there was a lot of learning on the fly there too. Where you're, you're oh my gosh, like every day something 100%. comes up where you're just like, okay, now we got to deal with this. What was that like? Hundred <laughs> percent, yeah, hundred percent. And that that was one of those um, once in a lifetime opportunities. Yeah. I, I don't know if that'll ever come around again. Um, it was a lot of hard work for a short amount of time um, because you know, to to kind of unpack the process, once the election happens and the vote is declared, of course, in 2020, it was a little different um, than quite, quite literally the next day, the transition teams have already been kind of determined and they kind of swoop into the different agencies and they get to work, understanding what the agency does, understanding what the agency has done as far as policy is concerned in that administration um, determining the priorities for the next administration that's coming in. Um, with 2020, we we all learned a word, I think, who <laughs> became the global like word of ascertainment. Like we were waiting for um, the, the election to be validated. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of like us meeting as a transition team, waiting for that final yes um, so that we could start the the hard work. And it was a lot of long days. Um, I was actually in Washington State at that point. And so I was in the other Washington, which is always fun, um, (laughs) where I would have meetings starting at 5 a.m. my time and then wrap up at 10 p.m. that night and do it all over again the next day. Yeah, Um, I would not trade that opportunity for anything because it was a, a great learning opportunity. And I worked with some incredibly smart folks in that process. And that must've just been a hyper three months of just like, nonstop. Oh <laughs> I can't, I can't even fathom. And on top of that, you throw in, Oh, just a little global pandemic where education has just been completely that. turned on its head. Right. And so now, so now people yeah. are, so pe- people are looking at the Trump administration and looking at the incoming Biden administration and saying, yep. okay, we need this funding. We need these tools. We need this yep. software and we need these things to keep happening. How are you going yep. to make that happen? And you have to have an right. answer for them. Yeah. 
And you have to, I mean, you, you also have to rely on like the research because you're trying to make informed decisions. Yeah. And then you go to your external organizations that are all advocating for their respective members. So whether you're working with the disability community and you really want to push for assistive technology and accessible ed tech, um, or if you're working with um, more of the folks that are uh, doing like the boxes and wires and you're like, hey, we really need cybersecurity to be like funded mm. um, because it is becoming a, a very serious issue um, in our schools. And yeah. so it's trying to hear what's happening with the research and then and synthesizing and summarizing that into a responsive memo that goes forward as far as like your recommendations. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so then after the transition, the presidential transition, you end up in the Department of Education yeah. uh, in the Office of EdTech. Um, and you just mentioned cyber. I, I mean, that yeah. for us, that right now, that's the, that's the boogeyman right now. That, that's the it scariest is. thing. Yep. And we've talked a lot about, you know, it's not, a, it's not an if, it's a when for, for a lot of people. Unfortunately. Unfortunately, right? And it's kind of, yep. you know, sort of mitigating the disaster and how, how you can do that. Um, I'm not sure if you can talk about it, but what sort of things are out there for schools and districts and states to kind of take advantage of um, yep. f- through your office? Yep. So we brought someone on in September, um, one of my team members who is working on an update to one of our publications called the Infrastructure Guide. And we knew that we were going to have a lot to update since 2017, just because technology yeah. has changed. Right. And we knew that cybersecurity was going to be a part of it. What we didn't know is how much things have increased and like whether it's a ransomware attack or whatever the case may be, um, cybersecurity, the the section of that in the guide right now just continues to grow and grow and grow. And so we need to balance it a little bit because we also want to talk about the importance of interoperability, yeah. and accessibility, yep. and all of these other pieces that are certainly um required to to provide a, a safe and secure digital infrastructure as well. Um, we also work interagency. So we we work very closely with our colleagues over at CISA, mm. um, which when you when you have an attack, and it's one of those when you have an attack, um, and you need that assistance, you need that technical assistance, um, CISA is a, is an option to reach out to and and get that. We also have um, separate from like the operations side of the cybersecurity stuff. We also have our, our colleagues here at the department that are that run the Office of Career Technical and Adult Education, knowing that there are pathways for CTE programs. And so we also want to lift up that if students are interested, like this is a CTE program that you could easily bring into your schools and also help develop that pipeline that we can then come back around and mm. help support our yeah. schools. Yeah. So there are, I wish that we had more resources. I just want to say that. Um, we are in the process of updating that infrastructure guide, and we're we're doing what we can. We technically have very limited authority in this space, um, and so also trying to navigate that. You know, we love we love local control, yeah. And yeah. so states that put in their own kind of standards, and then the school district then gets to determine what they apply within their their schools. This is a process that I did not understand when I was in the classroom. That was something that I had to learn whenever I went to the state level and then for sure at the federal level. Yeah. Um, so we also have to respect um, the, the rules and the policies at, at those levels, too. Yeah. And there's only so much you can push 
being a, sure. a where where your, your your authority at the federal level is is eclipsed by the state's individual. Yes. It, it's yes. and it's something I don't think a lot of people realize that the states are really in charge of education and the federal this, government offers 100%. guidance, right? Like Yep. That's a tough one. And we I mean we we serve as like the conduit for mm. a lot of money which we've seen with the relief dollars whether it was ARP dollars or the first ones that came out with the CARES Act. So we definitely serve a purpose. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right. The, the states actually have a lot of power. And that, once again, my own naivete, you can say, but when I went from classroom to the state level, um, because it was like a, one of those other duties as assigned. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love those. <laughs> I <laughs> I used to support our state board of education on a monthly basis when they would come in and do their state board meeting. And we got them all set up with Chromebooks. Mm-hmm. And I had to make sure that they were all logged in. Well, some, I mean, they were all elected in the state of Nebraska. Um, some of those folks were were elderly and like didn't remember passwords. And so like I have no have idea like, what you're talking about. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. So but then to sit in those meetings because I was there to troubleshoot. I learned so much. Yeah, yeah. I remember, you know, this past week I was at NSBA, the National School Board Association, their advocacy institute here in D.C. So I was in front of a room of, I don't even know, 500 school board members from all across the country. And I made a joke because I was like, the last time I was in front of a school board was with my students 10 years ago at this point. Um, because I loved being able to go to our school board and show them what my eels were doing with technology. Yeah. I was helping them with their content acquisition as well as their language acquisition. And then to go to an even higher level from there, the state board has has a lot of influence. They're, they're the ones that will determine if you're going to approve content standards when those are due for renewal or refresh. They're the ones that approve um, whether or not this, the state superintendent or secretary can do X, Y, and Z. Um, and so I learned a lot even just being able to sit there and go through the agenda and hear the public comment or the testimonies that um, it's a it's a public meeting. Yeah. So they have to have that. Yeah. Um, gets a little so parks, was, gets a little parks and recce sometimes. It does get. A little <laughs> <laughs> There's really Putting good on stuff. My very best Leslie yep. Nope in yep. that moment. Yep. Yep. Um, ready with my binder. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So the, it is important. And that's, that is one of the things that I, I talk a lot with educators when they are like, how do we get involved? We feel like we're really disconnected. And it's actually those board meetings. Mm. Um, yes, I will say that oftentimes they're done during the school day. That makes it challenging. Uh, but they, you can actually send in testimony uh, that they have to put on their record. And so that is one way to do it. Also a great field trip if you want to take some students. I mean, yeah, like yeah, it's a yeah. really interesting process to be a part of. Yeah. Um, so, and I want to move to uh, what you were going to be talking about at MassQ in your keynote mm-hmm. um, with digital equity and opportunity, um, yep. and how sort of your experience has shaped that. Yeah, quite significantly. So again, coming from Nebraska, 245 public schools. It's one of seven states that don't recognize charter schools. And so it has a very strong public school system. But you're talking about teeny tiny rural districts um, in the middle of Nebraska to the largest school district, which is the one that I first served in, uh, Omaha Public Schools, which is about 54,000 
pre-K through kind of transition. Mm-hmm. And that's actually the same size as Boston public schools. Yeah. I, that, um, okay. I, which, I was going to say that sounds like yeah, a little bit like so Boston. Like Boston or San Francisco Unified. Like you think big city. Omaha is not one of those that necessarily registers. Um, and the fact that they also recognize 114 languages. So that's wow. cool. Um, I know. I know. So it was being able to see uh, ed tech and the um, how we create that infrastructure in large systems like that, more suburban settings, because there are certainly those um, just outside of Omaha Public Schools mm-hmm. or even in Lincoln and some of the other kind of like mid-sized cities to the rurals that had 25 students K through 12. Wow. And so the super interesting to learn how nimble and agile your small districts could be because they could easily test things and try it or, you know, pilot test things. And then they're like, oh, this doesn't work for us. Mm. And then they would switch and they would move on. And so it's that iterative process that they were able to learn from. Um, so I say all of that because I I take I definitely bring that practitioner experience into the policymaking. And in 2021, in November of 2021, the president signed the bipartisan infrastructure law into law. And yes, I know that everyone was tweeting saying, well, schools are infrastructure. Well, trains are infrastructure. And everyone was trying to get their their piece of the pie. Uh, We actually, I mean, like education and connectivity certainly got that through the National Telecommunications and Information Agency um, that's run out of the Department of Commerce. So there's $65 billion to build up broadband infrastructure. Wow. And it's through two different programs, the Digital Equity Act, where states are designing their digital equity plans, and then the BEAD, and I'm going to forget what it is, but broadband, basically, um, where it's working on the broadband infrastructure. So we need to get the pipes in the ground. We need the, the workforce to help do that. So then that brings in the Department of Labor. You can see where the Department of Ed is kind of represented there because we want to make sure that education is also represented in those state digital equity plans. And so once we knew that they had like turned that into a law, we had a, for for the first time ever, codified into law, the definition of digital equity Mm. and digital inclusion. And so we're like, okay, we're going to use that. That makes sense. We need to frame everything we're doing here within our office digital equity and opportunity, because once we get to that digital equity, we get to those opportunities. And our charge as an office, we are congressionally mandated to exist, have been since 1996. Thank you, Clinton administration, for seeing far, far into the future um, that we work early learning, K-12, higher education, and adult education. So we've got this massive continuum that we have to consider around digital equity. So do we not only have the the boxes and the wires or the connectivity and the devices, do we also have access to digital content? Do we also have access to digital literacy? Because it was a really big feat for all of us, whether it was through mobile hotspots or any sort of emergency connectivity to get continuity of learning at the beginning of the pandemic. But then we had a lot of folks that didn't know what to do once they had the devices. They didn't know how to get online. They didn't know how to navigate the devices. And that really comes back to the digital literacy skills that we also have to make sure accompany all of this work. And so I'll talk about kind of our office priorities and the work that we're doing in in that space. Uh, You know, going looking at the pandemic and the way that we were able to pivot so quickly, I think in the classroom space um, was it was really remarkable what sorts of things were happening behind the scenes that people don't know about. Yeah. Yep. 
Do you have insights on what those behind I, the I scenes have none. Like? I have no insight whatsoever. I'm just... Uh, <laughs> I guess I'm being nosy now. This is no, 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 no. I mean, so I, I will tell you at the beginning, I was at new America at the time. Um, and so, I mean, it's a nonprofit it's considered in DC speak. It's a think tank. Mm -hmm. And so it's a lot of policy analysis and research and kind of recommendations moving forward. And I was on that teaching, learning and tech team. And so we were like, okay, is this our moment? Like, what do we do? And, and I had been working in that, um, open education space for a number of years and, knowing that open education, uh, particularly open educational resources, were resources that you can quickly like find, search and discover, and then customize it to your local context. We were pushing out all sorts of information and resources as much as possible. I The website is still up that you can go and find it, but like it also required going back in and, and trying to help kind of clarify um, the different types of resources so that were they comprehensive that you could just use them in place of a physical textbook that you might have had to leave in your building Mm -hmm. or were they more supplementary that you could pick and choose different lesson plans or activities and that went a long way so it was even starting with that um again i was not in a district or even in government at that time to understand what was happening certainly trying to stay um kind of ear to the ground with the network of folks that i know when i was you know, taking phone calls and trying to connect people to resources and, and just knowing that. Um, I've heard kind of how they were trying to to work on things here. And um, it was get money. Like that yeah, was the yeah, thing. They yeah. were trying to get money out as fast as possible. Yeah. And, uh, and they, I mean, still have the relief dollars out there that we're hoping that we can spend down now. Yeah. Um, and then hopefully sustain that as well. Yeah. And I think I saw it as a parent and as an educator where I was troubleshooting for parents and students and teachers on my professional side. And then on the, yep. on the dad side, I had like, I had a, I had a pre-K kiddo who was trying okay. to do, trying to do remote learning and the pre-K, uh-huh. you know, the pre-K teachers says, you know, okay, anybody have any questions? And everyone has a question and it's like, my, <laughs> my dad's taking a nap right now. Or, you know, like <laughs> it wasn't me, of course. Sure. Uh, but you know, the, the other stuff that comes out of their <laughs> yep. mouths, uh, I, I'm working at the dining room table and I look over and I see an, a Chromebook sitting on the table yep. in, in the kitchen and no child. <laughs> and I get up and I go, Teddy, where are you, where are you at, buddy? He's like, ah, I was kind of hungry. I figured I'd go get a snack. Just miss it. Just did you ask Miss Erica if you could get a snack? Sure. No. 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 I'm at I'm home. home. I'm at home. Why would I ask Miss Erica? <laughs> it was like, like, it was such a bizarre, strange, yep. like, yep. I, man, I don't know that there'll ever be anything like it ever again, and I hope there isn't. But I hope there isn't either. <laughs> but, but man, we made the most of it. You know, I think about some of the things that True. like that our staff our staff did and i'm sure that that you guys were able yeah. to put in a hyperdrive like um whether 100%. you were at, at new america or at the office of ed tech like things went into yeah. a hyperdrive for us we got you 100%. Know, I, I think we got 2600 chromebooks in like 18 months like you know we went one to one we went from you know like four kids to to one device to more than enough devices wow. for every kid wow. and, and and then we had to expand um, yep. and there were you yep. know we, we weren't ready for that kind of stuff uh, yeah. Our infrastructure wasn't ready for that. Yeah, and that's just it. And um, on that same panel um, from Monday from NSBA, Keith Kruger, the executive director of COSIN, um, sat to my right and kind of talked about how we discovered in this very instance where 
the kind of the minimum qualifications for E-rate mm. um, for us to get connectivity in our schools um, seems sufficient. Yes, we can continue to bolster that. But the the same kind of qualifications for home access for Internet it like it's just wildly different. Yeah. And so you're saying like you were working, you were teaching, your child was also online. I don't know about anyone else in the house, but like more than two devices trying to do that sometimes is just impossible. Right. 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 And I think for us, because I was a, I was a crazy person, I had like the crazy Internet. But like not well, every, not everybody has that. I know that. No, I know that because no. we, we were handing yep. out hotspots and we were handing yep. out Chromebooks to people that didn't have them. And all those yep. things. Um, I, so I wonder, you know, going back to the equity piece, yeah. looking at school districts themselves and then looking at individual families, the, the yeah. price of Internet is all over the place. Um, yeah. We did, you know, I did some research through uh, Internet Superhighway and that yeah. website and looked at the, what the districts around us are paying, are paying. Per, per, okay. per month or per year for Internet. And it's wildly different than what we are. And it's all over the board. Yeah. It's all over the map. Yeah. Um, literally and figuratively, it's all over the map. And (laughs) then I think about myself and my friends, what we pay for internet. And it's like, you've got Comcast, you've got Verizon. These are, this is what you pay for internet, but the school district, it's all over the place. I I don't understand. And I I don't know if you have an answer for this and you don't have to, but like how one school district can pay one rate and another can pay another for the exact same product from the same company. That I don't know the specifics on. Yeah. I know a lot of it, if the schools are um, using E-rate dollars, mm-hmm. a lot of it comes through that process. Yeah. So the E-rate process is super cumbersome. Um, even though it was modernized in 2015 from when it first came into play 25 years ago at this point, um, to go out and you have to you have to put the RFP out there, mm-hmm. the, I, the ISPs or the internet service providers have to respond. And so... It has to be within a qualifying kind of ISP, and I have a feeling that's why. Um, I, again, I don't know the very no, no, no. I've yeah, never done E-rate myself, but um, know many people that help do that at the state level, and it is a lengthy process. Yeah, I wonder if that somehow um, plays a part of it. It very and well. Now I'm curious. Yeah, it very well could, uh, and I know we have an E-rate consultant, and almost every school district does because yep. the process is confusing and it's long and it's hard and it's another thing, <laughs> right? And to think that that's, it's actually better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, and I, I, I respect that. Um, yeah. But, like, I mean, thank God we have Karen as our E-rate rep. You yeah. know, like, yeah. I don't know what we would do without her. She's able to tell exactly. us, oh, hey, this changed. And, oh, this, you qualify for yeah. this now, but you don't qualify for this other thing. And it's been great to have that. Yeah. And then the, you know, the the efforts that the, the Biden-Harris administration have made for home connectivity, mm-hmm. I, I would love to make sure that we talk about this a little bit. Um it was the emergency broadband benefit. They changed names because we like to rebrand things. It's the Affordable Connectivity Program. It is run through the FCC or the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, but we got, you know, like the the White House to get involved with the internet service providers so that they were saying, okay, what we're hearing from folks all across the country is you're offering this basic package that does not meet the minimum qualifications. Mm-hmm. Or it's capping, like it's data capping. Yeah. So a, a student may be able to get on to their Zoom class maybe, I don't know, for an entire week, and then they run out of data. And mm-hmm. then what are they supposed to do the rest of the month before the next one comes in? So they were able to work with the ISPs and get commitments from them so that the majority of your larger ISPs have like solid plans now that are much more affordable 
And then if you qualify for a majority or like, excuse me, a, a wide range of programs like free and reduced price lunch, um, SNAP benefits, Medicaid, Medicare, like all of these things, then you automatically qualify for the affordable connectivity program. And it's a $30 stipend. So it's that $30 that oftentimes covers the actual price of of the internet. Mm. Now, there are some limitations, of course, and you can go online and find out more in the Affordable Connectivity Program. Um, but that has also made a huge difference. We know that there are 52 million households that qualify. Wow. And we still only have about 14 million that have enrolled. Wow. And so there, there are just so many more that we could possibly be reaching. It's, it's like a constant thing that we bring up. We're like, hey, do you know about ACP? You should. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, and I'm sure there are specific communities where you go into those communities and say, like, this will cover X number of X percent yep. of your district. Yep. Um, yeah, that's I was. Yeah, I was in New Jersey last week um, for New Jersey Texpo. And I actually had a district come up to me afterwards and say, we've been pushing out information about ACP and making sure that it was multilingual for all of our families. Mm-hmm. And then we even offered like office hours on site at a school where families could come in and walk through the whole enrollment process. And then they've been mapping the number of students that are the learners and households that are now connected. And so they're actually tracking that. And I'm just like, it's amazing to think about knowing that that is, that's an option. Yeah. And and that's something a district can do at their level because they've got, they've got that data. They know the neighborhoods that could be affected. They know where where the where the biggest impact could happen with schools in their district, uh, yeah. I, I absolutely love that. That's so great. Yeah, and it's not always the biggest internet service providers either, because mm. I also think of your more rural areas. I I remember being at an event where I had some folks from Western Mass that came and they're like, "We have nothing." So like, can we talk about that? <laughs> yeah. Um. So like, don't want to forget my my colleagues here in Western Mass by any means. Um. But like, the infrastructure can actually work with local telco companies as well. Mm. And, you know, I had friends up in rural Wisconsin that their school district did some sort of partnership with their local telecommunications company, and they covered any um, households that did not already have internet access. And that was for like a two-year period. And now they're like working on a new partnership moving forward. And so it's even thinking about, you know, flexing the muscles around our communities as well. Yeah. And there were so many barriers before that were set for, by some of the ISPs that they would say, you know, oh, you have a past due bill from X number of years yes. ago. You don't yes. qualify. And like, yep. th- you're missing the point here, folks. That's the that's <laughs> yeah. the reason why we need it, you know. Um, so just r- real quick, uh, a couple of highlights yeah. from your what you're planning on talking about at uh, for your keynote. You're in the afternoon keynote, correct? Yes, I am. Yeah. So a couple of highlights maybe about what your afternoon keynote is going to be about. Um, We just released a brand new publication last week called the Dear Colleague Letter, and it's leveraging federal funds for ed tech. Um, It's not, you know, revelatory by any means, but it's thinking through sustainability Mm. of all of these things that we've done after the relief dollars. Um, So I will definitely highlight that. Um, I am also going to highlight um, the revision of the National Ed Tech Plan, which we have going on right now which is kind of the flagship document that comes out of our office. And then lastly, long before chat GPT was a thing, <laughs> long before, we were already working on the AI and education space. Um, and I mean, long before I say like 2020. 
Um, but we were having these conversations with researchers and developers and knew that we needed to kind of get in front of this. And yeah. so we will have a report that is coming out um, hopefully soon, fingers crossed. Um, so I'm hoping to highlight that and talk a little bit more about that too. Awesome. Um, and where can people find you online? So I would recommend the OET website. It's tech.ed.gov. Um, that is certainly a place that you can connect with me and, and all of our, our team members are all on there. And then I am on LinkedIn, Twitter, um, at KM Ishmael. All right. So, all right, everybody give, uh, Christina a follow on Twitter and connect. And, um, Christina, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Of course. Thank you, Brandon. You've been listening to the Get a Q podcast by MassQ. Here to educate, connect, and inspire.